Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Clark Engelbert. Clark is a health practitioner with a focus on mineral balancing or ionomics. He is particularly interested in the use of hair tissue mineral analysis or HTMA in identifying mineral imbalances and using the synergistic and antagonistic relationships of minerals to restore metabolic balance. The use of HTMA over blood analysis gives some salient advantages in some respects. Hair is a tissue sample that can be used to gain a deeper insight into the long-term status of an individual and their metabolic function. While it has its limitations, HTMA, when interpreted correctly, can be extremely helpful in identifying imbalances in the mineral system and establishing protocols to rebalance that system. Clark currently runs Nutritional Analytics, where he works with patients from all over the world and helps them deal with heavy metal toxicity and mineral imbalances that are extremely common today. His philosophy is embedded in the teachings and wisdom of soil scientist William Albrecht and physician Paul Eck, who paved the way for our current understanding of mineral interactions in biological systems. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Clark, so good to see you. I'm really glad we finally got to put this together. Um, so tell tell me your story about how you got involved in thinking about uh, ionic mimicry, um, heavy metals, and and testing these through hair tissue mineral analysis. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Cameron. I'm glad that we're doing this. Uh, we've been planning it for a while, so excited to be here and talk with you today. But um, I got into this, um, you know, this notion of looking at mineral interactions and um, ionic mimicry, uh, you know, the way that metals gain access to cells, basically through my own health journey myself. Um, you know, so I'm 38 now, but many years ago, I was having a lot of health issues. Um, and I went through the medical system, and there were no good answers for me for the issues that I was dealing with. So um, I ended up trying a bunch of different systems, a bunch of different programs to try and heal myself, most of which did not work, um, you know, despite there being decent rationales for each one of them. Um, and so I eventually ended up uh, getting on a mineral balancing program and, you know, getting on a hair tissue mineral analysis program after discovering Dr. Lawrence Wilson's website and working with some of his practitioners. Um, and that getting... Um, Getting on that program um, and being on that program for many years, um, I was able to basically heal my anxiety, depression, uh, really the after effects of having been on medications for those uh, maladies as well. Um, I was able to deal with my high blood pressure. I was 270 pounds, so I was very overweight. Um, I had thyroid problems and um, a lot of issues basically in my mid and late 20s. Um, and so I got on this mineral balancing with hair tissue mineral analysis program, maybe about 10 years ago myself and healed a lot of those issues. And I had been in school previously for nutritional sciences. So I kind of had that interest, um, in that I'd always had that interest in nutrition, basically for performance purposes, you know, when I was younger, cause I grew up being an athlete and, and that sort of thing. So, um, I went back to school, uh, you know, some years ago uh, and, uh, went to Boise State, uh, had some schooling at University of Arizona in nutrition sciences, and then uh, went up to uh, Boise State and uh, went back to school for biochemistry. So I was sort of inspired to get uh, into this work a little more deeply after my own healing journey. 
Um, and then realizing that there was so much, there were still many unanswered questions for me. And I wanted to dig into the research and really discover some of those questions that I still had um, about minerals and uh, mineral interactions, the mineral system, heavy metals, and how all those things sort of interact and affect our health at very deep levels. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I think a lot of people come uh, to looking a bit deeper into these things after having a health crisis of their own. I think that's a Yes. Uh, it, it happens to a lot of people and it's kind of a blessing in disguise um, when you look back on it. Um, but let's talk about um, why minerals interact and, and how how we came to figure that out in the first place. Yes. So this is definitely, I think, a very interesting topic. It's one of the most, um, one of my biggest areas uh, of research. And so there's a couple different um, angles that we can take when we look at this question, um, there's uh, a bunch of research uh, and a bunch of a bunch of researchers from like the 1950s in soil science who started to notice that there were interactions that existed between the elements. And in order to optimize nutrient and mineral balance in the soils, you had to understand those interactions uh, even more so than just like what uh, a given level of was for an element. And so the most famous guy in this um, in this regard was William Albrecht, who was a soil scientist um, at UCLA in the mid 20th century in the 1950s. And he started he was one of the first to notice this idea and basically apply it to soil science. Um, and that he was very well published, had, you know, thousands of papers he published. And then um, he wrote many different books on this particular subject. So he was one of the first guys to sort of notice this idea that minerals interact with each other in systems and specifically in the soil system first. Um, there, there was other people that came around um, in like the seventies, the very early seventies researchers started to notice uh, or pr actually just propose this idea in human beings. And um, we were talking about this before I, before we hit record and there is some landmark research from like 1970 by these two authors, Matrone and Hill, who proposed the idea that minerals would antagonize and synergize each other based on certain physiochemical characteristics. So like ionic radii or sizes in similar elements, this would cause antagonisms between those elements. Uh, also other characteristics like uh, Dalton's, um, and that sort of thing could also, if you, if the same number of, uh, uh, um, or the same like electron shells, uh, could potentially cause these antagonisms as well. And so there's right. various characteristics, uh, that they propose that, that could, um, cause either, um, an excess or deficiency of an element based on the interactions. Um, and so like the first that was kind of proposed, uh, tangibly was the interaction between copper and zinc and cadmium. And so there are similar physiochemical characteristics between those elements. And so they proposed the idea theoretically, they ended up proving it, uh, with some, uh, pretty interesting experiments. And this is where the actual idea comes from that minerals and, and, and actually metals as well interact in a broader mineral system, you know? So 
that was those were some of the first people to kind of propose this idea. Um, and then later on, a little later in the 70s, a really brilliant biochemist and doctor, uh, clinician by the name of Dr. Paul Eck, he uh, sort of was the first to pick up on like hair analysis um, and, and using the hair analysis to um, really measure the entire mineral system. Um, and then so give, that sort of gives us a sense for uh, the entire system of elements, but the balance of all those elements against each other. Uh, was sort of the first thing that he was using that test to measure, you know, so that's where the idea comes from. And that's, you know, why we know like zinc and copper are antagonistic or other elements are antagonistic, like calcium and magnesium, iron and manganese is another one that's maybe not as well known. Um, you know, so there's a lot of those interactions, antagonisms and synergisms that come from that early research in soil science. And then some of those landmark papers in the early seventies by, uh, Hill and Matrone. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I I knew that um, size, so um, atomic radii, was something yes. that that could um, you know allow two minerals to uh, sort of act act in similar ways. But uh, the valence, uh, so the the outer shell um, yes. being the same, also makes sense because I know there's some interaction between calcium and aluminium, or aluminium mm -hmm. as you call it. Yes, um, yes. And they're they're quite different. Uh, they're quite far away on the um, periodic table, um, but yes. they must they must share some physicochemical characteristics that allow them to sort of um, act in similar ways in the body. Yes, yes. So calcium. So um, this gets really interesting when we talk about metals and minerals, right? A lot of people sort of in the alternative health space they'll put essential elements or minerals in one category, heavy metals in another category. Yeah. But uh, we were, this is another thing that we were talking about, which is that the delineation, I understand why it gets done, but in truth, it actually muddies the waters. Um, and it, it sort of confuses people um, in some ways because the metals and the minerals all have some similar chemical characteristics or physiochemical characteristics. And what you're talking about with calcium and aluminum um, exist between uh, calcium, magnesium, iron, silicone, and aluminum, where they all have similar ionic radii. So in that, part in that situation, heavy metals can basically gain access to cellular compartments through certain mineral transporters because of the similar sizes. Um, you know, so this is sort of another, uh, I guess, area of of research that is very interesting, which is that, you know, there, the interactions between the elements don't just exist between like one element and another element. They exist between all of the elements and all the other elements, including the heavy metals. So like metals can gain access to cellular compartments through calcium channels, uh, through actually through iron uh, proteins, uh, through silicon transporters, uh, and aluminum is a, a good example of that, but there's this sort of um, concept called ionic mimicry, uh, which is this notion that metals are gaining access to cellular compartments through these mineral channels and transporters, basically. And each individual metal can utilize, or depending upon which metal they have similar characteristics with, they can sort of mimic multiple of the essential elements across the entire mineral system. And so 
Aluminum and calcium is a good example. Aluminum and magnesium, aluminum and iron, aluminum and silicone is another example. Uh, but when we look at each of the metals, you know, you can kind of go through it uh, manually and like, you know, nickel has similar chemical characteristics to zinc and to magnesium and chromium. So uh, nickel can gain access to cells through those three uh, mineral transporters or the different transporters that those minerals have. So this, uh, it's, uh, it's not one plus one equals two in a system. It's mm -hmm. one plus one equals 10. Uh, you know, and this is why talking about the broader mineral system is so important. Uh, you know, understanding those interactions can give us a deeper insight into the biochemistry than just like the individual elements themselves. Yeah, th these are non-linear relationships between yes. all of the minerals, and and it's it's impossible to think of one without thinking about its effect on all of the others. It's kind of I yes. like thinking about a spider web. If you ever find a spider web and you pull one mm. part of it down, the whole web moves with it. And right. Depending on where in the web, it moves proportionally, but the whole thing moves. And I yes. like to think that that's kind of what's happening when you when you change the balance of minerals in the body. Every other mineral shifts in some way shape or form to, to compensate for what's going on and i think this is quite an important thing particularly nowadays with people supplementing with you know single minerals for long yes. periods of time in high doses in high doses yeah um and you know that shifts the whole mineral system uh even though you you think well yep. you know for example i've got low zinc i'll just take zinc that approach mm -hmm. can cause, um, you know, a litany of other things to happen that you mm -hmm. you might not be aware of. So, um, you know, what 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 do you think is sort of the best way to approach? Um, I mean, ob obviously, uh, we can get into a bit of, you know, how we can use hair tissue min mineral analysis to assess where we're at and what we might need mm -hmm. to do to help balance um, our mineral system out. Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, what to do about it is quite interesting. But the example that you gave about zinc is also very interesting where um, and maybe I can address that first. Yep. Um, when it comes to supplementing the nutrients, our approach is to uh, understand the interactions as the primary uh, diagnostic tool. Right. You know, we're, we're, so, we're sort of using the hair analysis, but using the hair analysis to assess the whole balance and then the interactions between those elements dictate what we give and how much to give. But in the zinc example, it's very interesting because zinc has um, an antagonistic relationship with sodium. So if you have a low, low zinc level, but also a low sodium level, this can be very problematic when you take uh, zinc by itself because of that antagonism that exists between those elements. And, and this is this, I think, speaks to the broader issue with taking X mineral for Y condition or taking whatever for Y condition, you know, some people might have viral issues, let's say, or immune system abnormalities. And they think, well, I'll take zinc. That's what I need because zinc is used for the immune system. But it's not quite that, it's not precise enough where zinc is used in the immune system, but zinc has to be balanced against these other elements to be optim optimally used in the immune system. So. Um, in that particular situation, like when we look at a hair analysis, if someone has a very low sodium level or a low sodium potassium ratio and they have low zinc, giving them zinc in that situation could actually make them worse. 
So we have to balance out giving zinc with other elements that are sodium synergists at the same time. So in essence, what we're doing when we engage in the system that I call mineral balancing is we're trying to balance, let's say, six or eight parameters on the test all at one time so that we balance the whole system and all of those parameters all at once. And it is the balancing of the whole system that triggers healing and much better functioning of the immune system, digestive system, neurotransmitter function, and a whole everything else that minerals are involved in, right? Metal binding proteins, antioxidant enzymes, you know, we could go the whole podcast and list everything that minerals are involved yeah, exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're, you're, that sort of zinc example is uh, highlights how important understanding those interactions are. But there's other things as well. Like we want to understand the whole system. Um, many of the minerals use similar transporters as well, like in the gut. So, like there's this uh, uh, class or uh, family of mineral transporters called the divalent metal transporters, and these, you know, they, they're, so, they're so named because they transport divalent metals through uh, the gastrointestinal tract into the blood, through the liver, and, and they uh, then get transported, those elements get transported into the tissues where they need to go or partition where they need to go. So um, that's another reason why we want to understand, like, the whole system. Uh, but it's also quite interesting, certain heavy, different forms of the heavy metals can utilize different mineral transporters as well. So like um, arsenate utilizes phosphorus transporters to get into certain cellular compartments. Arsenate is the organic form of arsenic. Arsenite utilizes silicon transporters to get into certain cellular compartments. Arsenite is the inorganic form of arsenic um, it's arsenic plus five, I believe. Um, and ar arsenite is actually more toxic uh, than organic arsenic. But, you know, so the different forms of the metals can utilize different of the mineral transporters to gain access to cells. So that's sort of another reason why you want to understand the whole system instead of just the individual elements. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that um, yeah. different different forms, obviously... We, there are, you know, oxidized and reduced forms of a lot of these things. And, and, you know, you could wind up with different pathologies depending on which ones you're exposed to, I imagine. Yes, exactly. And that's another thing that there's another level of complexity to this. Yeah. Where the metals are deposited determines what, what sort of thing can manifest, what sort of symptom or condition or disease. The form of the metal does matter. Uh, like certain of the metals, like ar with arsenic, arsenite is more toxic than arsenate. They're still both toxic, yep. but you might have worse problems with arsenite uh, than you will with arsenate. And that's true for all of the other elements, right? And people know about that with mercury, yep. uh, you know, so there's a, a sort of continuum that exists for each of the metal and the different forms that they come in. Uh, but the, the route of exposure, the duration, your mineral status, all of these things play a very significant role in where the metal gets deposited, uh, what it's substituting for, what essential element. But what's also sort of interesting about this ionic mimicry concept is that it's not just that metals are utilizing mineral channels and transporters to gain access to cellular compartments. That's true, but that's half of the truth. 
the metals are actually being used by the body to run enzymes and proteins that those essential elements are normally supposed to be running. So in that way, metals sort of become essential to your function at some level. And we can kind of think about this substitution process or ionic mimicry as a adaptive mechanism that the body is making or engaging in to keep you alive in the short term, right? So ionic mimicry has these two parts where gaining access to cellular compartments through the mineral channels and transporters is part one. Part two is the metals will be utilized uh, on those enzymes and proteins as like catalysts for those biochemical reactions. They The problem comes in when you understand that the metals are sort of like inferior replacement parts and those enzymes and proteins just run at a much lower efficiency than those essential elements. So that's where dysfunction comes in. The analogy that I use with a lot of people is that it's sort of like when you're on the freeway, you're driving your car and the fan belt in your car breaks. You can use the belt on your person as a replacement part to get you maybe to the next town, right? That's what the heavy metal is. It's an inferior replacement part. Um, you know, so, but if you try to drive your car across the country with the, you know, with your belt, instead of an actual fan belt, the real factory part, then you can end up with serious problems, um, down the line. Yeah. And I, I think what you've touched on now is, is really one of the key things that we need to think about when trying Mm -hmm. to get rid of these metals, because we need to understand that in Mm -hmm. the absence of correct, um, mineral balance, um, mm-hmm. those metals aren't going anywhere. So, you know, yes. there are a lot of efforts out there. And I think detox, um, the, you know, the buzzword has become so popular because you can sell a lot of stuff. So it's quite, marketable. Right. but the fact that you're going to, you know, take binders, um, and, and things are just going to leave you without addressing the underlying, um, mm-hmm. mineral balance of the body. Uh, you know, I, I know there are a lot of people out there who say, you know, we need to take binders, you know, indefinitely in the world we, we, that we live in. But the reality is, if you're not addressing the um, the mineral balancing issues, you can take binders all you want. But those metals are, uh, uh, perhaps you can correct me, but I, I think they're still embedded in the in in the body in ways that aren't they can't be liberated without um, their actual counterparts being there in in proper ratios and amounts. Yes, that's true. And that's a big argument. You know, the chelating people, a lot of the people in the detoxification space do not like me for this reason, because I attack chelation. But it's for this reason, you know, we have to understand, okay, so metals are gaining access to cellular compartments through the mineral channels and transporters. But why is that in the first place? And it's because there are no normal or regulatory homeostatic mechanisms to control metals partitioning in the body because there's no use for them. Yeah. So the metals, right, they, there's no uh, reason for them to be in the body, right? Or the body has no use for them when they get into the body. So the metals have to gain access through the mineral transporters. Uh, this was discovered a long time ago. But when we understand that the metals are actually sort of serving an adaptive function at some low level, this explains why so many people who use chelating methods get much worse yeah. when they use those methods. It's because the metals are actually sort of keeping you alive at some low level 
running those enzymes and proteins that, you know, desperately need those essential elements, right? And it's more complicated, like sort of going back to what I talked about before, you know, a lot of people want to just use silicon, uh, silicon yeah. for uh, like aluminum detox. But guess what? <laughs> aluminum is replacing silicon, calcium, magnesium, and iron. If you just take a ton of silicon, you're not necessarily going to displace uh, all of the aluminum burden throughout your body if the, if the aluminum is replacing those other elements, right? But so you can kind of think of metals as like they're in the absence of those essential elements, there's sort of a conditional uh, essentiality to the metals where they become necessary to keep you alive without the minerals. And so when you just rip them out using chelating agents, this can make a person much worse because then there's nothing left for that enzyme or protein to actually be catalyzed. So this is very, very destructive. There's other drawbacks to chelation that I feel like no one else is discussing. I really took a very deep dive into this a couple months ago. And, you know, even the medical researchers who, you know, are writing the textbooks on metal toxicology admit a lot of the issues with chelation, but uh, they're just not well publicized. And so like chelating agents are, are decent in acute exposures. So when you have a, a, like if you're working occupationally and you get exposed to a lot of mercury because you're working with mercury vats or, you know, you get exposed occupationally to lead and you have an extreme exposure or acute exposure to those elements, chelating agents in the hospital can be useful for that application because uh, chelating agents really shine when you're trying to uh, chelate metals out from the extracellular to the intracellular space. So when metals are sort of in the blood actively circulating, that's when chelating agents are, I think, beneficial. When you have metal toxicity occurring over five or 10 or 20 years, this chronic subclinical type of exposure that I'm talking about, and most people have in the Western world, uh, chelating agents are notoriously bad. They, they simply cannot penetrate actually certain tissues in which the metals will be bound up in. Like the lungs and the brain are very good examples of two tissues where chelating agents cannot penetrate and they cannot get into. Yeah. So there's other drawbacks as well, like chelating agents like EDTA, uh, other synthetics can chelate out your essential elements as well. Yeah. So this becomes problematic when you, uh, when you go back and understand like ionic mimicry, metals are gaining access to the cells because of mineral imbalances and deficiencies in the first place. So chelating agents can make those imbalances even worse while, you know, while you're pulling out those metals. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also other interesting wrinkles with this as well, where uh, certain of the metals, cadmium in particular, cannot be chelated because of the proteins that it's bound to intracellularly. Right. So there's no, there, there's no synthetic chelating agent that exists for cadmium just doesn't exist because it cannot be chelated out of certain uh intracellular spaces that's fascinating i i know you yeah. i know you recently had a um a conversation with one of the world's leading cadmium toxicologists um yes. and obviously um she specializes in kidney function because yes. that's the organ that's most affected by cadmium yes. um, what else did you learn from her yes um a lot of interesting things so um, I would say the first is that 
when it comes to excretion of the metals, part of the reason why in the literature there's this uh, discussion of like certain organs have an affinity for certain metals. And the liver and the kidneys are your body's first line defense in expulsion of those metals. Yeah. So as you accumulate these metals, whether acutely or chronically, your body's uh, defense systems sort of kick in and use the liver and kidneys as those eliminative channels. Sometimes the skin and hair is another eliminative channel, but the liver and kidneys are the primary ones. And so the most of the metals actually have an have quote unquote an affinity for those uh, organs because that's where the body's sort of frontline defense kicks in and is trying to eliminate those metals as quickly as possible through those channels. If you have liver or kidney dysfunction for any reason, those metals can become trapped in those organs. Um, and like mercury and cadmium are notorious for having that sort of quote unquote affinity for the kidneys. Many yeah. of the metals also have an affinity for the liver. Um, you know, so that was one of the things that I, I asked her specifically. I was like, why, did, why in the literature is there this, you know, discussion of like certain organs have an affinity for or certain metals have an affinity for these different organs. And that's part of the main reason why is those organs are sort of at the very front line of trying to defend you against the toxicity of those elements. So that I think was a very interesting uh, bit of our conversation. Um, a couple other things I found interesting were, um, we, we talked about mercury quite a bit. Her, her lab, uh, the person that we're talking about is Christy Bridges, PhD. Mm -hmm. He has a lab uh, at Mercer University in Georgia in uh, the United States. Um, people can look her up. But she was uh, one of the first people to write about in the literature about ionic mimicry. As I was going back through my own research, I found her and a few other people who started to talk about this idea first. Um, you know, so... I asked her about a, a couple different things related to that, but one thing I didn't know, uh, which I read from her paper and got into it with her, was that while ionic mimicry is one piece uh, of the puzzle, heavy metals can mimic endogenous biomolecules like your hormones as well. And this is called molecular mimicry. And so she talks about this in her paper, and we talked about that quite a bit. Most of the metals mimic estrogen in various ways through in different ways. So that was something that I found quite interesting. I talked to her quite a bit about that. Um, and then certain of the, um, certain of the minerals can mimic, uh, hormones as well. Like selenium is what she calls an insulin mimic where it can actually accomplish some of the same things that insulin does, um, on the, on the glucose transporters. So selenium can actually like lower blood sugar in some people, uh, you know, so that I found really, really interesting. Uh, but the, the estrogen piece and the molecular mimics, uh, the, the metals being able to mimic estrogen, I thought was very interesting, especially now in this age where there seems to be estrogen dominance in both men and women nowadays, especially in a lot of men who are more feminized and, uh, you know, have this more effeminate effect than we've ever really seen. Um, you know, and that I think tracks very nicely with the decline in testosterone uh, in men in the Western world in the last like 30 to 40 years. You know, so um, that piece of, of the conversation that we had, I think, was very, very interesting as well. 
Yeah, that that's fascinating. I've heard a few clips um, of of you yeah. speaking to her, and yeah, it's just it's incredible to think that these things have been spoken about for quite a long time, but no one's yes. really picking up on them or or applying them in any real sense uh, in the health space. So I think it's quite refreshing to sort of hear these things that have been published for a really long time start to make their way to the foreground. Um, I wanted to ask you about exposure. Um, yes. Obviously, we want to minimize our exposure to um, these metals and, and elements that don't really have a place um, in our in our biochemistry uh, in the mm-hmm. body. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they happen to be quite useful in industrial settings, so they get used yes. a lot. Um, yes. So we get exposed quite um, quite easily. Um, and I remember um, you've probably seen this paper. There was a group of researchers looking at um, metal level, uh, heavy metal levels in uh, the serum of kids in Turkey, and they mm. they thought, well, you know, you sweat you sweat out these metals. So what we'll do is we'll get them playing basketball on a on a hot summer's night, and they'll mm-hmm. sweat, and then we'll test them after and see how many how what their levels are. Yeah. And they found that the metal levels went up. Uh, and they they were wondering why this was, but they realized the pollution was so heavy in the city that mm. all of the exercise that they were doing, they were breathing in so much that their, their right. levels actually went up even though they sweated so much. Um, right. So, you know, the problem is really, really pervasive, um, yeah. particularly if you're living in a place of high population density. Yes. Um, so, you know, what what are some things that, that anyone can do to sort of help reduce uh, their exposure. Yeah. So number one, I would say, um, the, one of the biggest risk risk factors for metal exposure is being in a more urban environment. That's number one. If you're in an industrial area, like in the United States, the East coast is very industrial. There's a lot of factories around, um, that would be, um, that's in the literature, uh, you know, the, the exposure through the air tends to be much worse on the East coast in the U S yeah. So, and that's because there's a lot of cities on the East Coast. So, urban urban environments are definitely worse. Um, that's number one. Number two, the the most important thing that you can do, aside from avoiding exposures in the air and in the environment, is to avoid processed food altogether. Um, processed food, not only through inadvertent means, but through advertent means. Um, has a lot of metals in them. Um, and, you know, for anyone that wants to get a little more into detail on this, I was on Matt Blackburn's podcast and we talked about this a lot. You know, um, there's three main exposure vectors in the processed food, uh, three main metals, I would say, uh, that are that are found in processed foods that you really want to avoid. Um, and that's aluminum, nickel, and mercury. And aluminum is is basically used in the water supply intentionally as an antifungal agent, you know, so this sort of speaks to what you were saying before, these metals are very useful uh, in many different applications, whether it's cleaning up the water, whether it's like treating the wood that's behind you uh, with arsenic to make sure that it's uh, water resistant. Um, You know, many of the other metals are like anti, other metals are antifungal, antibacterial agents like mercury, Um, you know, so, the metals are so useful, uh, you, you want to definitely avoid tap water and any prepared food that's made with that tap water. So that that kind of like basically a lot of your processed foods. 
are going to have aluminum in them just through virtue of being made with water that's treated with aluminum. So that would be number one, avoid tap water. And along with that, avoid processed foods as much as you can. Nickel is used as a catalyst and has been used as a catalyst in the hydrogenation process for all of the trans fats since 1915. So they've been using nickel as a catalyst in that regard for over a hundred years. Um, so anything that has trans fats, a lot of the anti-seed oil people are correct in that seed oils are not good for you, but they're not getting, they're not picking up on this nickel piece. You're, you're getting a dose of nickel every time you consume those, those types of fats. So, but anytime you consume margarine, which is a horrific food, commercial peanut butter, cookies, cakes, anything that's made with hydrogenated oils, you're get French fries, which, you know, I'm a millennial. I grew up on McDonald's French fries, you know? So, um, you know, that's a huge exposure vector as well. Nickel and all the hydrogenated foods. Um, And then this is sort of another uh, very interesting um, thing that I discovered about six months ago or so by reading the literature. I was looking at mercury toxicity and I found out that since the 1960s, when they first started to synthesize and use high fructose corn syrup, they use mercury to make the high fructose corn syrup. So um, anything that has high fructose corn syrup, you're getting a dose of mercury. And in my opinion, that exposure vector is maybe more important than the mercury in the fish, which is very important, more important than the mercury in the vaccines. That's very important. Um, you know, uh, but then mercury in the amalgam fillings is also very important. But the soda and anything that's made that has high fructose corn syrup, you know, that's like a part of Western culture, basically. So everyone or almost everyone, 90% of people are drinking soda or have at some point in their lives. So they're getting a dose of mercury through that route. Um, Those are the main ones, you know, avoid urban areas as much as you can. I think suburban's a little better. You wanna be in a place that's got clean air. That's very important. And then avoiding processed foods, like everything that we just went through, but then eating a diet that's very nutrient dense will also protect you against uh, metal toxicity because the the nutrient dense diet, the minerals um, and all of the vitamins in that diet, you know, act as sort of antagonists to all of the metals. So that's another big way I think that you can avoid uh, to some degree bioaccumulating the metals you are exposed to. Yeah. But we're all exposed. Yeah. We're all exposed to these metals. Uh, You know, they're almost inescapable. And the last thing I'll say on this piece is that um, there's research looking at like very remote locations around the world um, and like snow and soil samples, uh, looking at like the arsenic and cadmium and lead content of um, snow and soil samples in Antarctica, Greenland, and, you know, 20,000 feet up on Mount Everest, and they're showing metals in all of these locations. So it's sort of like that to me, when I started to look into that, I I was like, whoa, this is really not something that we can, you know, the governments have to do a better job at at protecting uh, people than they are. Yeah, I I think it's something we all need to, we all need to take seriously, because no no one's really totally safe um, from from the, these exposure vectors, uh, like you were saying. And I think a really good point is basically a really nutrient dense diet is going to be yes. the, one of the best buffers you can give yourself. 
um, to to help protect against that. Um, and speaking of food, I wanted to get into a little bit of the, um, one concept that comes out of um, HTMA is this idea about slow and fast oxidation. Uh, this is sort of how I was introduced to all of this through the work of George Watson, um, mm-hmm. whose, whose work I think is absolutely brilliant and um, meshes really well with uh, using HTMA to establish sort of what your metabolism does and and how it's right. how it's working. So right. broadly speaking, you know, we can use um, HTMA to gauge uh, whether you are a, a slow or a fast or a mixed oxidizer or a balanced oxidizer rather. Um, so what what are the differences between someone who's in fast oxidation and slow oxidation? Yes. So yeah, Watson's work, um, you know, established this notion that there are people that burn food at different rates. And that's pretty true. If you look at some of nutrition science, you you can basically, uh, you can look at this and study this. Certain people's metabolic rates are faster or slower depending upon different factors. And so um, Watson was the first guy to identify this, but then Dr. Paul Eck was, you know, the brilliant genius who applied this notion to the parameters on a hair tissue mineral analysis test. And so in some ways, he he was the first to parameterize the oxidation rate. And so on the hair analysis, there are two mineral ratios that we can use to assess the metabolic rate, um, the calcium-potassium ratio and the sodium-magnesium ratio. And each of these ratios correlates with the cellular effect of thyroid hormones for the calcium-potassium ratio and adrenal hormones for the sodium-magnesium ratio. So we're really looking at the balance of the uh, thyroid hormone and the adrenal hormones when we look at these uh, mineral ratio parameters on the test. You know, so uh, those hormones, uh, those glands determine essentially the metabolic rate, especially thyroid hormone. So like with the calcium potassium ratio, we can use that ratio to assess the cellular effect of thyroid hormone because calcium is used to desensitize the cells to thyroid hormone. Potassium is used to sensitize the cells to thyroid hormone. So when we know that the hair is a biopsy or tissue test, we can basically make this uh, association that the calcium-potassium ratio is a measure of the cellular effect of thyroid hormone. Similarly, with the sodium-magnesium ratio, we can basically make this assessment that uh, the cellular effect of the adrenal hormones is associated with that uh, sodium-magnesium ratio. So when we assess the metabolic rate or the oxidation rate, usually um, slow oxidizers uh, tend to have much higher calcium and magnesium levels than sodium and potassium. And so to give a more, uh, an easier explanation for what the oxidation rate is, it's the relative balance of calcium and magnesium against sodium and potassium. So you can think of like calcium and magnesium on a hair tissue mineral analysis as like the the breaks on your metabolism. And then sodium and potassium are kind of like the gas. And in slow oxidation, calcium and magnesium are much, much higher than sodium and potassium. In fast oxidation, sodium and potassium are much, much higher than uh, calcium and magnesium. And so in some ways, we are assessing the metabolic rate, but we can also assess uh, the different phases of stress uh, by looking at these mineral ratios and the relative balance of these elements as well. 
And this sort of dovetails very nicely with Hans Selye's work, who established the stress theory of disease uh, in the 1950s, another very famous researcher, um, you know, and so we can look at the metabolic rate through the lens of George Watson's work using the hair analysis, or we can assess the phase or stage of stress that you're in also, uh, basically because many of the stress hormones, the adrenal hormones in particular, regulate sodium and potassium retention in your tissues. So um, lots of interesting ways to look at it, but what, you know, slow oxidation is associated with like certain symptoms and symptomological profiles, like slow oxidizers um, just tend to be more sluggish in general. Um, they don't have as high energy as the fast oxidizers. They might be colder. Uh, they might be uh, more prone to low blood sugar. They don't sweat as much. Those sorts of things are associated with slow oxidation and just poorer cellular effect of the thyroid and adrenal hormones. All those things that you would associate with hypothyroidism and uh, adre suboptimal adrenal function. Um, and then the reverse is true for the fast oxidizers. Um, you know, they tend to sweat more. They tend to be your type A's, like, you know, go get them and like tight ass hardwired people. We all know those people. I might be one of those people, you know, uh, <laughs> and there's, there's those people out there, but the, the hair analysis can basically, um, put specific parameters to these ideas, which is quite remarkable. But the implication of this is that balancing the oxidation rate improves the energy efficiency in the cells. And this is what we're doing to trigger healing in, in, in our clients, basically. But also the, the other implication of this is that there are very different strategies that we use to correct a slow oxidizer versus a fast oxidizer. And understanding the differences between the oxidation rate can help us to understand why certain people respond really well to certain nutrients, why other people respond well to other sets of nutrients, but also why certain people would be drawn to specific diets. Many of the macronutrients affect the expression of the, the balance of these minerals as well, which is also sort of another very interesting uh, realm. Yeah, um, I'd love to touch on that a little bit. I've been fascinated um, you know, by this idea that fast and slow oxidizers require different levels of macronutrients and micronutrients as well to help bring them into a more balanced and um, and steady oxidation rate. So what what are the nutritional and dietary considerations that, that one might have depending on whether they find out they're a fast or a slow oxidizer? Yes, so uh, fast oxidizers tend to do really well on the higher fat diets. And this is because in fast oxidation, you're essentially in a fight or flight state of stress. Your stress hormones are very high, you might be hyperthyroid, you might lean that way. Thyroid hormone might get into your cells a little more rapidly than it should based on that calcium-potassium ratio being low. Um, and so the, the fats are sort of, um, they're very interesting when you look at them. They convert to acetates in the brain, which are very calming for the neuro, uh, nervous system. They affect GABA on some level, the acetates in the brain. And so on a very tangible, like mechanistic level, fats can help to uh, slow down the oxidation rate in fast oxidizers. And this explains why certain people would be drawn to keto or higher fat approaches 
but also why when people are very stressed out, certain people stress eat very rich foods. And that actually has a very calming effect on the nervous system. So um, fast oxidizers tend to do really well on like the low carb, high fat approach, Atkins, keto, carnivore, those sorts of approaches. Uh, that explains why certain of those people go in that direction. They tend to be fast oxidizers. Um, and it, it can help to balance their oxidation rate to some degree uh, using supplements and, and other nutrients to reinforce that process works even more permanently. Yep. Uh, so we can get into the nutrients that uh, fast oxidizers use and, and require more of as well. But um, a few of the nutrients that are very important for fast oxidizers, uh, the main one is copper. Now, there's a lot of these groups out there that are like, you know, recommending 100 milligrams a day of copper and, you know, copper will save you uh, from every ailment that you have and everyone should be taking a lot of copper. Those folks are the, the ones that do well on the higher copper protocols tend to be fast oxidizers. Yeah. And the reason for this is because copper is a calcium and magnesium synergist. So when you take calcium and magnesium, let's say you're a fast oxidizer, you have low calcium and magnesium, high sodium and potassium. Just taking calcium and magnesium will not raise the tissue calcium and magnesium levels the same way as if you pair the calcium and magnesium with copper. Right. And actually, this is even uh, reinforced even more so when you give parathyroid hormone, because parathyroid hormone is uh, regulating and affecting calcium and magnesium in the tissues as well. So calcium specifically and copper are synergists. So when you give copper, you will raise calcium more efficiently, more effectively um, in the tissues. And this is what fast oxidizers need. This is what balances them, right? Uh, so calcium and magnesium are a sedative elements uh, and copper is very important. So those three nutrients tend to be very important for fast oxidizers. Vitamin D, quite important for those people as well. Um, but I would say, just as important is avoiding certain nutrients for fast oxidizers. Um, avoiding excessive protein or carbohydrates is quite important. Um, so we don't want them on a high carb diet, like a pro-metabolic approach. All those people that are gaining weight on pro-metabolic, you know, those are fast oxidizers basically, yep. you know, so uh, the carbs can drive up sodium and potassium in the tissues because of their, the way that they stimulate cortisol, cortisol, regulates potassium retention, right? So there's a specific link there mechanistically. So uh, fast oxidizers wanna avoid like the higher carb approaches, the pro-metabolic approaches, excessive protein, but they also really wanna avoid excessive B vitamins and like adrenal and thyroid glandulars. And in particular, uh, exogenous thyroid hormone uh, can be very harmful for fast oxidizers. Um, so those are some nutrients, uh, that you want to avoid in fast oxidation and sort of the converse is true. Slow oxidizers do really well on all of those things that fast oxidizers should avoid. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's because of the way that all of those elements are stimulating, uh, the raising of the sodium and potassium levels on the hair chart and in the tissues. So like B vitamins, adrenal and thyroid glandular, uh, protein and carbohydrates will all help to raise the sodium and potassium levels in the tissues, 
and balance out very high calcium and magnesium and bring up that sodium, those sodium and potassium levels as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really fascinating. That's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around for quite a long time is trying to figure out how to help people, um, you know, choose the right foods, choose the right um, nutritional approach to help Mm -hmm. their, um, to help their oxidation uh, rate get back to a more balanced um, level. And I think this brings us perfectly into the relationship between our oxidation state and our personality. The, the way the way our mind sort of works, it's really quite fascinating to think how much an impact um, minerals and, and even the heavy metals make on, you know, who we are, you know, the way we express ourselves. Um, and this is very well known in in uh, when leaded fuel was was being used. Um, lead in in the blood correlates mm. directly with antisocial behavior, um, directly with IQ. Um, so it's not that far fetched to think that you know the balance of minerals and metals in in the body can adjust the way our personalities are, adjust the way we express ourselves. So um, yes. yeah, I, I wanted to get into this idea that you know, we can, our, the way that we think, the way that we are can change when we, when we balance our minerals out. Um, and this is something that I think you've seen quite regularly with your clients. Um, I've heard some very, very grateful mothers, um, you know, uh, speak to you about you helping their, their kids, you know, uh, you know, focus more at school and they're doing much, much better. So how does this, how does mineral balancing connect with, you know, the, the mind part of uh, the story, not, not, not the physical body, but you know, the personality and the mind. Yes. I think it starts actually with um, the physical body uh, and the blood brain barrier. Many people don't know this, but the blood brain barrier evolved to regulate minerals in the brain. And this is because the minerals regulate neurotransmitters basically at the most foundational level. So minerals are operating at this level where they are controlling the neurotransmitters um, and the neurotransmitters do have an effect on not only our personality, behavior, thinking, all of those things are are related to neurotransmitter function. Um, So that might be the bottom up way to think about it, but there's a top down way to think about it as well where there's a sort of anthropomorphic quality to all of the minerals and the metals where each of the minerals has specific characteristics. Like let's take uh, zinc as one example. Um, Zinc is a very strong but flexible metal. And in sufficient quantity in certain brain regions, it gives a, a strength but a flexible type of strength to the personality. Um, and to the thinking processes. Um, and so there's there's that way that we can think about that as well, uh, the anthropomorphic quality of these elements. Copper is a very good conductor of electricity. It's very malleable, very soft. Copper actually gives women their feminine essence. They have higher copper levels than men, right? So the reason why women are much more social, good conductors of electricity, uh, much more malleable, receptive, is because of those higher copper levels. At a very foundational or fundamental level, 
these elements are imbuing certain of their characteristics that they have onto your personality, onto the way that you think, and onto your essence, basically. Uh, you know, it can kind of take on this religious overtone um, in some sense, but these elements are determining um, in large part, like your personality, the way that you think. Silicon is a very slippery and uh, uh, it's a very slippery element. It's used in as a, right, it's a semiconductor, Silicon Valley, right? But silicon gives an ease and a slipperiness to the personality as well when you have it in your brain in sufficient quantities, right? And so when we think about this in terms of metals, we can think about this in terms of like, let's say cadmium or lead. Cadmium is a very hard metal, one of the most hard metals, and it actually is used in industry to plate steel. Uh, they use it in cars and in other applications, but um, so cadmium, when it gets inside of you, it can harden your arteries, it can harden your kidneys, but it can also harden your personality, right? P and we know this sort of archetype of the old weathered biker guy who smokes two packs of reds a day, you know, Marlboro Reds. Part of the reason why he is that way is because cadmium is, is very high in the cigarettes, but it's the cadmium is hardening his mind and hardening his personality, leading to, you know, he might be kind of a dangerous guy, more associated with criminality, more apt to get into physical altercations, you know, so, but lead and cadmium are very well known for, uh, for the ability of uh, those two elements to influence uh, criminality and attention issue. One of the things that I talked about with Christy Bridges is the mechanism through which lead can lead to criminality. And her um, her theory is that, I have my own ideas, but her idea, her theory is that lead leads to decrements in the IQ and the reasoning capacity of the mind. So it's it's the lack of reasoning and the, the lower IQ that actually leads to the criminality itself. Uh, there's other, I, I tend to think that, um, well, lead, right, has this um, um, ability to lower IQ, but it also has this ability to um, affect the endocrine system and stimulate many of the fight or flight hormones. So someone might be in a chronic state of fight or flight. At some low level, this impacts their ability to focus. They might drop out of school, uh, and that leads them to criminality, right? Uh, they can't basically make it in. Uh, society as it were, like normally, you know, so this can lead to criminality and, and those sorts of effects. But yeah, the the larger idea that the minerals and the metals influence your personality, your thinking process, um, and, and who you are at some fundamental level, I think is maybe the most interesting aspect of all of this that we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the other things that you've got me thinking about quite a bit is, um, creativity as a marker of health um mm. and i i think it's something that should be spoken about more because i think inherently we are a creative species we we should be we should have hobbies and things that we do that that make something out of nothing um mm. and i i see you playing guitar a lot and yes. uh, your skills are, are quite uh, astonishing so uh you know what what has been your experience with mineral balancing and and shifting the the way that your uh, your mind thinks about creative 
pursuits? Yes, this is a really interesting uh, realm, I would say. Um, the first thing is that when you are when you have your minerals balanced and you're free of most of your toxic metal burden, your energy level goes up dramatically. Yeah. So your ability to practice over time will go up dramatically. You, you can study concepts uh, more deeply. And the more deeply you study one concept and another concept and another, the more you'll be able to make connections in your mind that you wouldn't have able been to make before, right? So you can tie things together. A lot of it is an energetic component. But just a personal anecdote, I used to be a professional musician. I was a guitar player in my 20s. Um, and more recently, you know, obviously I changed, shifted careers, got healthy, started this business and, and run nutritional analytics now. Um, but over the years, as I eliminated lead, one thing that I noticed personally is that my perception shifted at a very subtle level. And the way that I viewed the, um, not only my hand on the guitar, but other greats that I would love to, you know, play like and was studying, like, how did they do that? I noticed certain things after my lead elimination, I had a, a very different perception of, let's say Stevie Ray Vaughan or other great blues guitar players. I noticed that their hand was positioned differently than it was before. And so I, I started to mimic that. And I was like, oh my gosh, um, you know, my perception of that changed and I was able to see things differently and get a greater insight on how these great guitar players were uh, achieving what they were achieving. And I sort of mimicked that in myself and was able to use that to take my own guitar playing to another level at like a fraction of the time investment now, you know, because I don't have the time now uh, with all my clients and everything to devote to six or eight hours a day of playing guitar. I might noodle a little bit at night after I'm done with all my work, but that is much more constructive because I unlocked certain things uh, that I was not able to see before. Um, and so like those, there are subtle perceptual shifts that can occur when you eliminate your heavy metals, which might make you see your instrument or your creative endeavor uh, in a more insightful way and help guide you on more purposeful and uh, just better sort of practice routine. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like being hypoglycemic or hangry, you know, like when you, yeah. when you really want to eat, your personality changes dramatically, you know, you get angry at the smallest of things. And then as soon as you have a few bites of food, you're like, yeah. wow, that's who was I, you know, I 10 know. seconds ago. Um, I... So, you know, it's, it's not that far fetched to think that the overall balance of minerals and, and metals in the body can can impact um, the yeah. the body and the mind in, in that way. Uh, it's re yeah. really exciting to think that um, you know you you can become more balanced and centered um, by taking care of yourself and 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 focusing on these types of things. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, two things that aren't on the HTMA: sulfur and um, and iodine. Um, yes. I want to talk to you about the importance of these from your point of view. Um, you know, what, what roles do these uh, elements play uh, in, in health? Yes. Iodine and sulfur are both very, very important. Sulfur that we don't read them on the analytical research labs uh, test because they can be somewhat reactive. And so getting um, a very good reading of them 
with the method that we use, the atomic spectrographic method that we use can be difficult to get a very good reading of them. But that doesn't mean that they're not very important. I mean, iodine, uh, Dr. Stillman and I talked about this a lot in his thyroid webinar. You know, we talk about iodine quite a bit. It's very important for thyroid health, but it's also very important for the health of almost all the other tissues as well, right? So iodine is used basically all throughout the body. It's not just for thyroid hormone. Um, you know, so, um, but with respect to thyroid hormone, you know, iodine is a structural component of thyroid hormone, you know, so we, we can't forget that. Um, so thyroid hormone in, in large measure is governed by your iodine status. So this sort of goes back to what we were talking about before. We, you can't talk about iodine without talking about uh, the other halogen elements, which displace and replace it as well. The fluorine, the, the chlorine, and the bromines of the world. Um, and that, I think, is the biggest issue with iodine nowadays is, yes, I think iodine tends to be mm, run at a lower level um, than many of the other elements in the food supply. But it's the halogen elements being so ubiquitous, which directly displace the iodine, which is as much, if not more, of a problem uh, when it comes to iodine status. You know, so in the programs that we recommend or that I have clients on, you know, I'm not a big fan of mega dosing iodine necessarily. I think there can be some use case for that. But generally speaking, we recommend like around four milligrams to 15 milligrams per day of iodine for most people. And that I think fits pretty nicely with a lot of the data out of Japan yeah. where, you know, on average, the Japanese are, are somewhere around that three to five milligram threshold for iodine, you know? So, um, so, you know, when it comes to sulfur, obviously sulfur, uh, is one of those other elements structurally that makes up the sulfur containing amino acids which are very important for detoxification. Yep. Very important for detoxification. Cysteine, homocysteine, glutathione are all sulfur containing. So those, uh, those are very important for, or act as sort of like the frontline defense for uh, mercury toxicity. So sulfur containing foods in the diet, uh, you know, the onion family, the garlic family, eggs, meat, uh, very important to include in the diet. Um, you know, we could probably talk about for quite a while, uh, the issues that vegans have. Um, and a lot of that is related to just sulfur not being there at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause they exclude those sulfur containing, uh, foods. So, uh, but detoxification is, um, you know, sulfur is very important for detoxification. So, um, and then iodine for thyroid hormone, um, so those are the two big, uh, areas that those, those elements correlate with. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, you speak quite a bit about sauna. Um, I know yeah. sauna is a very, very important part of, of your protocol. Um, yeah. and I think it's becoming more and more important, uh, just in these, in these times in general, um, yeah. not only for, um, not only because you actually get, give your body a chance to sweat and yeah. eliminate some of the things that it might need to get rid of, but also um, to be exposed to the near infrared um, and infrared mm -hmm. uh, wavelengths that also stimulate 
um, detoxification and have a host of other benefits as well. Um, so what's, what's your, what's your view on sauna and, and for its use in the, in, in general? Yeah. Sauna, you know, along with those other things that I mentioned earlier, avoiding urban areas, avoiding tap water, avoiding processed foods, eating a nutrient dense diet, sauna is a phenomenal way to detoxify. Um, you know, depending upon the type of sauna that you use, I have a specific type that I think is the best. Others have, you know, their own opinions, but sweating relieves the burden of the kidneys having to process whatever is coming out in the sweat. So, you know, um, there is a difference between sympathetic sweating in exercise and parasympathetic sweating in sauna. And that's a very important distinction. Uh, you know, uh, Brian Richards of sauna space has made in various, uh, talks that he's done on various podcasts, but parasympathetic sweating, like sweating in the sauna, you will sweat out more toxins and more, uh, bad stuff than you will say in, uh, exercise sweat. And that's basically because in exercise, the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system is activated. Yeah. Whereas in sauna, it's not, it's a much more parasympathetic activity. So sauna is very important. Uh, we utilize it in our programs, in our mineral balancing programs. Um, the near infrared type of sauna is the one that I think is the best because it's sort of a hybrid device that is uh, light therapy plus heat therapy. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of light therapy is now popularized due to like Jack Cruz and a lot of those folks, acolytes of his who are, you know, brilliant. I, I couldn't have more respect for a group of people in the alternative health space than Jack and those people. So light therapy is very important. Um, but when you combine light therapy with heat therapy, it's sort of like this uh, exponential effect on your detoxification systems, because not only are you getting stimulation of uh, certain mitochondrial pathways through the near infrared light, but you're also getting the heat shock proteins and other benefits of sweat uh, through the mid and the far infrared frequencies that come off of these uh, special uh, infrared heat lamps. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's such a great tool. Um, and if anyone can, you know, afford even just a basic setup, um, doesn't have mm -hmm. to be one of the crazy, you know, right. clear light saunas or anything like right. that. You know, you really just want want to try and work that in um, as as something that you know, is a regular part of, of your life on, on some sort of regular basis. I think, uh, it's going to be increasingly important. Um, so before I let you go, I, I just, I wanted to get into a little bit about interpreting HTMA because I know it's the wild west out there and, yeah. um, people might be interested in getting a HTMA after hearing this. Um, and perhaps you can, um, avail us of some of the dangers of poor interpretation you know, the main example being, you know, using each level as an individual marker of, of mineral status, uh, which is quite common for um, practitioners using HTMA, using it as like a blood test, I suppose, when it's not that at all. So how should we be um, looking at, um, first of all, getting a HTMA, where to get one? Because I know the lab is very important as well. Um, yes. I learned that the hard way. Um, but, yes. yeah. um, you know, how, how to go about interpreting it. Yes. Yeah, so th this is, I think, uh, maybe one of the most important areas to touch on with hair analysis. Um, interpretation of the test is 98% of it. So if you have someone that doesn't know how to interpret it, 
Um, I'm not going to say it's totally useless, but it's going to be much less useful. And so with the hair analysis, the, the way to think about this is that we're using the hair analysis to get a glimpse at the entire mineral system all at one time. We're not using it to get a reading of 21 or 23 discrete elements. And so part of the reason why the hair test is so cool and unique is that it's a reading of all of the elements in the mineral system all at once. Um, another cool aspect or inherent characteristic of the test itself is that it's a cellular reading of the minerals since it's a bio, since your hair is a biopsy tissue, but then we're reading those elements over the course of about three to four months. So you can kind of juxtapose that with uh, blood testing, which usually you're really only getting a reading of the minerals 24 to 48 hours from when that blood sample is taken. Not so with a hair test. We're getting about a three to four month average of the mineral deposition into the cells of the hair. So there are some inherent characteristics that are good of the test, but then when it comes to that interpretation, it's assessing or looking at the whole test as one whole system. Most people are using the test, like you mentioned before, looking at it like, well, calcium is high, magnesium is low, sodium is high, potassium is low. They're using it to read all of the discrete elements as separate and distinct from one another. You want to, and the, the, my training through Dr. Wilson's uh, training program, it took me many years to figure out how to actually do this. So you want to consult with someone that knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but it's looking at the test as a whole system, number one. And then um, we can get a little deeper from there. We tend to prioritize looking at the first four elements on the test, calcium, magnesium, sodium, and potassium, more so than the other elements, because those elements control and determine a lot of the uh, metabolism of the other elements. So the first four elements we think of as like primary readings on the hair test, and they control many of the secondary or trace elements on the test. Meaning when we can normalize calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, and the balance thereof of those elements, that actually has a profound influence on the trace elements as well. So a good example of this is that sodium and potassium are maybe the two most important readings on the entire test. And this is because they are the body's main monovalent elements. They help to maintain in solution in your blood, all of the other elements, including calcium, magnesium, iron, copper, manganese, zinc, and so on and so forth. So the uh, that's very important to know those primary readings. Also on those primary readings, the calcium and magnesium, sodium and potassium, and the ratios thereof of those elements, um, those are basically more so a reading of the cellular effect of the hormones that regulate those elements in your tissues than a measure of those elements, the intake of those elements in your diet. So we can, you know, going back to the work of Watson, which we talked about a little earlier, we're reading more uh, the cellular effect of the hormones that regulate those elements in your tissues more so than we are the actual intake of those elements in the diet. Um, so those are, I would say, a couple different, you know, ways. I, I think another really interesting framework, the way that I think about the test is, you can think about the test in, in a, as like a sort of four dimensional type of test where there is uh, the time component of the test. We're measuring the minerals over about a three to four month period. 
you can think about the each individual mineral and what it does as sort of like the depth component of the test, the fourth dimension of the test. So there's the time component, the depth component, where when we look at like individual mineral readings, which is a, a part of what we're doing in the interpretation, we can look at the zinc level and say, well, zinc is involved in like protein biosynthesis and digestion. And if you have a low zinc level, we can use the zinc level as a biomarker for those processes that zinc is involved in. So that's sort of like the depth dimension. And then there is this uh, height dimension to the test where what are the minerals doing relative to their ideal concentration threshold, right? Like is zinc near the ideal? Is it low? Is it high, right? And then there's sort of a width dimension of the test where you are actually reading each mineral against the other mineral that it's right next to. And so you can kind of think of the test as a four-dimensional test or a, in this sort of framework where there's a width dimension, there's a height dimension, there's a depth dimension, and there is a um, time dimension to it as well. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And I, I'm really glad I stumbled upon HTMA because it's such a useful test to have done and it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, if you look right. at all of these tests going around, I mean, you can spend, you can easily spend thousands of dollars, um, you know, checking all sorts of uh, fluids. Um, but the reality is what you're getting from a HTMA is, is a broad overview of all of the functionality of the body. Uh, and when you, when you're looking through the results with someone who really knows what they're talking about, you can make such informed decisions about what to do, um, just regarding your overall health. Um, so I, I think it's such a powerful tool and, um, certainly one I'll be, I'll be using more of, uh, myself. Um, so where can people find you if, if they want to, um, you know, sort of get in touch with you, uh, about this in more detail? Yes. So a couple different places, I think the best place would be my Instagram, uh, which is just nutritional underscore analytics. Um, that's a really good place. You can, uh, you can email me at Clark at nutritionalanalytics.com or, uh, the website. That's basically where we, you know, uh, route all our clients through, uh, is just nutritionalanalytics.com. Um, you can go on the website and look at the different hair testing packages that we have, uh, to purchase and that sort of thing. So those three are the best really to get a hold of me. Awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm sure uh, more people are going to become interested in this. I I think I think um this sort of discussion is making its way closer into the mainstream, which is which is really good to see because it's it's a nuanced approach. It's not you know it's not uh, overly simplified, which which is what I like. I think people stand to benefit more from this kind of discussion. Um, right, so, right. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I'm so glad we finally got to get, uh, yes. <laughs> finally got to do this. Um, right. So uh, we're going to keep in touch and um, yes. yeah, hopefully, hopefully um, people who listen to this reach out to you and, and uh, sort of follow your work a little more closely. Yes. And one final parting thought I wanted yeah. to include, uh, which I think sometimes can get lost in the fray of the complexity of all of the stuff that we're talking about is that, we are using mineral balancing as the trigger for heavy metal detoxification. 
and detoxification of the improper forms of the minerals. So you might be wondering, like, what's the point of mineral balancing, right? It's to, it basically, mineral balancing triggers much better functioning of the detoxification systems, the immune system, many other systems. And this automatically is sort of like a reverse engineering of the metal bioaccumulation in the first place. And so mineral balancing equals heavy metal detoxification. Yeah, it's it really is the foundational level um, upon which um, this this can happen. So, you know, starting at first principles is always is always the best place to go. You don't want to try and address things so far down the line because uh, they usually don't work. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm really grateful for um, the the knowledge that you've shared with me, and I'm sure there are heaps of people out there who have benefited greatly um, from from this type of uh, program. So. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Cameron, for having me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you'd like to keep up with Clark's work, I've put some links to his social media and website in the episode notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple, no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave any comments on my YouTube channel as I do read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms and website in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.